This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 17th, the I Love You Even When You're Mad edition. I'm Zach Rosen. I host the Best Advice Show podcast. I live in Detroit with my family. My daughter Noah is four, and my son Ami is one. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I am a writer, contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is nearly nine, and we live in Los Angeles. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's nine, Oliver, who's seven, and Teddy, who's five. We live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. On today's show, we are tackling a rather interesting question about navigating unwanted attention. Our letter writer's little kid doesn't love the attention she's getting for looking different than other kids in her area. What should they do? Then we welcome Deborah Farmer Chris, a child development expert, NPR contributor, and PBS Kids columnist, to teach us how to help our kids and ourselves understand that all emotions are okay. And on Slate Plus, we'll be discussing a fascinating piece by science journalist Melinda Wenner Moyer. She talked to grown-ups looking back on their experiences with child therapy. But before we get into all that goodness, we received a very personal and informative listener letter following the episode a few weeks back about the impending death of a grandmother. Hi, y'all. My husband died by suicide in 2018 when my daughters were ages four and two. I came to learn that there are tons of resources available to help kids learn about death and process their grief. Since he died, I've become a mom who speaks openly about death with my kids I'm also open with this part of our lives with new families we meet. Of course, this is a great tragedy, but this experience has given all of us a new level of empathy for others, and it's important to try to give your kids these skills so they can learn to process death as they grow and develop. Thanks for taking the time to make conversations about death a normal, not terrifying part of parenting. Character break. Uh, The letter writer provided a bunch of wonderful non-religious resources, which are in the show notes. So we're going to list all those resources in our show notes. Uh, This is really a helpful letter. Thank you so much. You can always write to us at slate.com. I just like am so blown away by the resources our listeners share from their Mm -hmm. own personal experience the best advice comes from someone who's gone through this. So I just um, am really moved by this and, and agree that, you know, making conversations about death less terrifying could be super important, particularly like if you, if you're in a conversation with someone who's had that so present in their life, the death of a father and they're talking about it, making sure that your children are also receptive and empathetic to what that means. Yeah, totally. 
Okay, let's move on to some parenting stories from our week. Jamila, what do you got? I have a triumph for once. It's not a (laughs) huge one, but I'm taking it. You know, Monday was Valentine's Day, and Naima had asked me a few weeks ago if we could spend Valentine's Day together, which worked out because it was the day that she was scheduled to be with me anyway, and I'm single, so womp womp. (laughs) We were going to be together anyway, girl. But um, I was like, cool. And so I didn't do anything over the top. I just bought some of our favorite candy, C's candy, which is really good. If you've ever Mm. um, been to California or had some, it's just like this really great candy shop. And the lines are always kind of crazy, especially around the holidays. And so I went a few weeks in advance and I bought us a box of candy for us to eat. What kind of candy? It's like by the pounds. So like I picked out our favorite. I don't know. What do you call these? These are the, these are chocolates. Oh yeah. my God, I don't know okay. what you call them. But chocolates. like with fun stuff in the middle, right? Like flavored and fun stuff yeah. in the middle. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Fun stuff in the middle. I like the toffees. She mm. likes uh, stuff with raspberry or like cream. Um, so I bought us the, a nice assorted box of chocolates and I got cards for her and for my mother. And I sent my mom some chocolate and a card. And I'm proud of myself because I usually just... I don't do, I don't know. Like I just, I I pull it together for Christmas and Halloween, but the other holidays just kind of, I'm just not really the person, you know? And so I did a holiday. So I'm proud of myself. Naima had a nice time. She enjoyed her candy. One of my girlfriends was in town. We got a chance to go see her and went to the park for a little bit. It was a very nice Valentine's day. That sounds lovely. It was really nice. Very nice. And I want to eat some candy. Yeah. (laughs) It's the best. Right C's now, candy. C's it is chocolate. Really like good. S-E-E? Yeah, S-E-E. Yeah. Yep. It's so and good. And they have okay. cute little shops. I miss that from oh. my California days. <laughs> Elizabeth, you, have you lived in every state <laughs> in this country? I feel like every yes. episode you're like, oh yeah, when I lived in the exact place <laughs> you're talking about. Life of a military spouse, guys. Yeah, we've, we've lived <laughs> yes. a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> What have you got, Elizabeth? So I'm also taking um, a triumph that is completely my children's triumph, and I'm just claiming it as my own. Uh, We had a little family retreat this weekend at something that the military base um, puts on to really, like, get families out there spending, like, no technology family time together. They do it at a little local retreat center. There was snow tubing. There was like an activity where there were just thousands of finger rockets that we shot at each other behind tables, like just us. It was great. But one of the things they offered was something called crate stacking, which I know there was a TikTok challenge where you stack the crates and and crawled on them. And this, they had this, but as a family, two people are on belays and you stack the crates and the two people that are on the ropes like climb up onto the crate and you hand them another one they put it on the other so it's like two stacks of crates that are that are growing one crate at a time and they're stepping up on it and i knew henry was going to want to go up on the crate and oliver really wanted to but as it it sort of got close cuz we had talked about it as it got closer to our time to do it he was sort of like well, I don't know that I'm going to be good at this. You know, like maybe somebody else should do this and maybe I should hand up the crates or maybe I should do something. Mm -hmm. And Henry actually came over and was like, I want to do this with you. And like took Oliver and Oliver was just like, you know, glowing. Um, And then they got up there and Henry really never yelled at him. I mean, listen, Oliver did nothing but stand on the crate. Henry would catch the crate, put the crate down, step on on it, and then hold Oliver as he climbed up onto the next crate. And they got, like, 
like 15, I think, crates up. So very tall to the point at which Jeff is like tossing the crate and Henry has to catch it and then put it down and step up. And when Oliver said he was done, like one of the options is that Oliver could have just come down and Henry could have continued on his own. And Henry was just like, this is a family activity. I've If he's ready to be done, I'm ready to be done too. And so they jumped kind of off together and got to knock down their big crate tower. And it just... Sometimes in this house, it feels so much like Oliver can be an outsider. He is definitely um, the the most introverted of all of us. He's a little bit quieter, a little bit scareder of things. Henry and Teddy play so well together, and often the two of them kind of go adventuring together, and Oliver will want to read a book or do something quiet um, with one of the adults. And so just to see... Henry realized the importance, or maybe he didn't, maybe he, you know, he has his other motives, but I'm going to say to see Henry kind of realize the importance of doing this as a family and being that like, hey, we're going to all do this um, together and I want to do this with you was just like such a nice, you know, glimpse in between all the fighting and the throwing and the hitting and whatever else that they like really had a nice time. And we really did feel like, hey, we achieved this really fun thing together that we, (laughs) you know, are not doing all the time. Like there's, this might be our one time we ever do crate stacking. So to choose to do it with your brother and to have a good time and kind of be a team was a really great feeling. Totally. That sounds really fun. It does. It was interesting. No, it was really, really fun. (laughs) What about you, Zach? So I think we need to do a triumph hat trick. Okay. You two had triumphs. Let's 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 make it a three for. All right. This is one that I can't take credit for either. It's all Noah. This week was Valentine's Day, and uh, her preschool teacher encouraged the kids and and families to take the card making into their own hands and just kind of do something creative and loving, and. So this weekend we were working on Valentine's cards and my wife was adamant about Noah thinking of like specific um, things to say to each of her classmates in the cards, mm. which I thought like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. But also like, yeah, I'm sure like a bunch of kids will will do that. And so we spent some time this weekend making cards, Noah designed them. And then, you know, Noah dictated what she wanted us to say to her friends. And I was so impressed with Noah's like specific letter writing skills and and the specific ways in which she complimented her classmates, which she totally gets from from Shira, my wife. She's my wife is a very good complimenter, an artful complimenter. And so like, you know, inside these cards, it would be like, Dear Blank, like, I love how we play ninja together. Dear Blank, you're such a good friend. I love your singing voice. Oh my god. You know, like like each each different That's so um sweet. you know, yeah, dear blank, I love playing family together. And uh I thought it was so sweet. And then she went and gave them, she was so excited to give them to her friends on Monday. And and she came back with a whole basket full of Valentines from them. And like, to my surprise, I'm not, I'm not talking shit about these kids, but to my surprise, their cards were all generic. It was just like really great designs, but it was just like, you know, to Noah, happy Valentine's day, love fill in the blank. And hers was the only one that had like cool correspondence. So I was so proud of her that she took the extra time to do it, that my wife had the the foresight to make that happen. And I feel like this is like the beginning of a, hopefully a long life of writing nice things to her friends and letters and correspondence. That's lovely. Like teaching that skill of making each person feel seen, I think is great. (laughs) Yes. That's something they'll all remember. So three triumphs. Congratulations, team. We did it. We did it. This week, we're in the green. This is the first time this has ever happened. (laughs) 
since i've been on this is definitely the first three three triumph we'll be back with three fails we're feeling the valentine's love yes yes this is a good week for it it's making all the bad things that happen go away it is absolutely look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey (sighs) well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer they've changed so you don't have to download the new bumble now this podcast is sponsored by skylight calendar let's be real running a household can be exhausting and chaotic And finding the perfect Mother's Day gift, it's not exactly a no-brainer. Until now. The Skylight Calendar is the best way to organize the family and give everyone, especially mom, some peace of mind to enjoy the things that matter most. The Skylight Calendar is a smart, touchscreen calendar that keeps track of and manages the chores, dinner planning, groceries, and to-dos for the whole family. The Skylight Calendar automatically syncs each family member's digital calendars and displays them all together on one color-coded touchscreen. It even doubles as a digital picture frame, so you can finally share all those special moments that are just sitting on your phone. As a limited-time offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightcal.com slash easy. All right, let's move on to our listener question. Once again, being read by Shasha Leonard. Hi, my four-year-old daughter and I live abroad. She's in a uh, poop and pee are hilarious phase, which is fine. But recently she has started to call other people poo-poo in English and in the local language, especially some of the women who are part of our apartment community, like our neighbors and building staff. She also screams, I don't like you at them and even will throw toys towards them. I finally got her to tell me that she doesn't like them because they give her, quote, too much attention. And they do. She generally gets a lot of attention here, particularly for her looks, which stand out where we live. Strangers comment on her looks several times a day. I regularly stop people from taking unsolicited photos of her. I'm tough when fending off the amateur paparazzi, but it's more complicated with the people in our community. They are not taking photos. They're genuinely caring and nice, but they can still give my daughter a lot of unwanted attention. So, I'm super confused. I don't want my daughter getting so much attention for her appearance, and she clearly doesn't like it. I don't like that she's being exoticized for a particular kind of whiteness that stands out where we live. I'm uncomfortable with her being rude to people in our community, especially in a culture with a high emphasis on respect for elders. And I'm wary of my own tendency towards nice girl confrontation avoidance and want to help my daughter learn to stand up for herself. What's the route towards both appropriate behavior and self-advocacy? What should I actually be trying to teach her in these moments? Thanks. Interculturally adrift. I don't have anything to add except for, like, this happened to us when we were living abroad. And I can totally emphasize, um, Oliver has very blonde hair, but when he was little and we were living in the Netherlands, it was like white white hair um and he had this very chubby round face and and 
not so much with the Dutch, but with many other cultures that would be visiting. We lived in a tourist town. Um, people would approach him because of his white hair, take pictures of him, like putting the camera in the stroller, in the bike to take pictures of him, like very close to his face. I don't know that I ever really figured out how to handle it because the one other family that we knew that had a similarly, so I'll say like hair color, because I think that's what it was, was like the the hair color um, because it didn't happen to our other kids. We just sort of chalked it up to like expat life. And so I took to like a lot of hats that covered his hair if I knew we were going to be somewhere and basically (laughs) just hiding from it. He did also, because he's very introverted and sensitive to a lot of people, he exhibited kind of similar behavior in terms of like pushing people away or throwing things. And I did try to correct that to say like, we need to say no thank you or we can remove ourselves or we can hide, we can put a blanket over, but we're not gonna like do harm to other people. What I walked away with though was this understanding of as a traveler, when I've been other places and seeing people react like that to how local people dress or how local people look and kind of just tried to empathize with the like, I've had this happen and it's very unpleasant. So if I can correct other people that I'm around when they go <laughs> to try to do that, like m- maybe we can we can spread, you know, like affect change that way is is stepping out to correct people um, from our own culture who are who are doing these things, trying, you know, asking to touch uh, hair or clothing or other things of someone that looks differently. I never really though came up with a good way to to deal with it. And I think the complicating thing here also is that there are some people that are part of her, her social group, you you know, that she's seeing daily um, that it needs to be addressed with, which was not the situation I had. Mine was definitely like Mm -hmm. random people who would, who would come in from different places. But I, I don't know. Do you guys have anything better than that? (laughs) I I have a, a little bit of experience from my own childhood with being, exotified for being like complexion with curly hair. And so people wanting to touch my hair or just kind of being a little bit too effusive with praise in ways that, you know, it didn't take me long to to wonder, do you say these things to other little black girls? And for me to develop some, you know, unpleasant feelings about the attention I got for my hair and connecting it to, it's because I'm light, you know, I'm not the cutest mm-hmm. kid around. I'm just the lightest kid knowing that because my hair was thought of as quote unquote good hair in certain parts of the community that it represented something painful perhaps to girls who did not have the same kind of hair, right? And I I didn't feel that I'd done anything special or that I looked special. And so I really, really, really was uncomfortable with the attention. And it's like kind of resulted in me having some hangups and stuff around the way I look in my hair to this day. With that in mind, um, not to take her discomfort too lightly because it's real. Mm-hmm. She's quite young, but I do think she's old enough for you to start talking about the reasons why she's getting this attention. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, there are a lot of different types of beauty in the world and everyone is beautiful. But unfortunately, uh, there are people that think that a certain kind of beauty is the best kind of beauty. And mm-hmm. so when they act that way, they're acting as if these other types of beautiful are not as good. And we know that that's not true. And then you can have mm-hmm. brown hair, you can have dark hair, you can have light hair, you can have dark skin, you can have light skin that everyone is pretty. 
And so two things are true that your daughter is going to need to understand that she is beautiful, that she does receive attention that's unnecessary. You know, that she should think of herself as beautiful, but she should not feel entitled or, or, or mm-hmm. necessarily worthy of this kind of praise. You know, that she hasn't done anything wrong, but that it's over the top. And that she should also be able to forgive those people for fawning over her in a way that makes her feel uncomfortable while having some boundaries up. So what that means is that you might not like hearing, oh, you're so pretty. You're just the prettiest little girl from random strangers. You know, it's okay to not like that. You can be gracious and say, thank you so much. I I like your shirt. I think you're very pretty too. I always returned compliments, you know, no matter, like I would always find something to compliment when I was a kid, when when people would compliment my hair. Hmm. And so, you know, having something nice to say back and also her understanding that that's as far as the encounter should go, that no one should touch you, no one should take your picture, you know, you don't have to continue engaging with people, you can be polite, but you have the right to keep it pushing, you know, and so you all can model what those exchanges look like. Like there's a a level of respect that you want your children to have for their elders, right? And so that's not to say that elders are infallible and that it's okay for them to make you feel uncomfortable, but being able to separate, well, this person said something nice and maybe I didn't want to hear it, but it was a nice comment. So I'm not going to take it to, you know, and be upset about this or feel uncomfortable versus, you know, this person reached out to try and touch me or snuck a picture. I think that, she's going to have to develop a threshold for some level of this kind of engagement, that this is going to continue to happen to you throughout your life, um, perhaps more here than in other places. And so you'll have to learn that, you know, delicate balance between being gracious and saying thank you and being polite, but also not making yourself available endlessly to strangers just because they think you're pretty. That's really good. I, um, was somewhat puzzled by this question. I think it's so complex. And I enlisted my wife and also my friend Maureen, who always give great advice. And I asked them what they thought. And and one thing that my friend said, which I thought was really smart and something that I hadn't thought of, is just this notion that young girls especially are like taught to spare everyone else's feelings, mm-hmm. even if they're the ones being made to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for you, the fact, letter writer, that you are calling this out and you are you know you're turning the paparazzi away that's that's that form of advocacy is so huge and that you're aware of this is is profoundly important already so that that's amazing and just to like you know call that out even more like it's not your job to make other people feel comfortable especially if if they're making you feel uncomfortable so that's great that you are teaching your kid how to advocate for themselves. And, um, you know, like Elizabeth and Jamila, you're saying, just like advocate for yourself without calling people poo-poo. Like that's, uh, that's, that's learnable. Like that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a, it seems like mm-hmm. a really tangible pivot that your four-year-old can make and that they, you know, should be able to, or soon will understand. So you're doing great parent. It sounds like you're living in a really interesting place. I, I'm curious where, where you are. Um, but that's not the point here. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you can't control what other people do, but you can you can control yourself. But that certainly doesn't mean that you can't call BS out. I was wondering if there was a way to bring the 
the close neighbors because that seems to me like its own problem like these people that she's living with and and seemingly having some kind of relationship with right like they're in her building or um neighbors that she sees regularly if there's some way to bring them into the solution because if it's in fact what's happening is more on the cultural side and especially maybe if their parents i just feel like it's something that you could turn to someone the, the some of these were things that when i lived abroad i would turn to locals to sort of ask like hey we're having this problem it, how can i deal with this in a way that's still polite you know and so turning to the people even though they're part of the problem to say like hey my daughter is re- getting really uncomfortable with all the attention she's getting here how like how would that normally be handled is this is this the type of culture where like i should be saying something like the it, it would be completely normal for me to upfront say stop you know, or is it more like these are words I can use? Is it a more polite handling? Because some of that is cultural, like how Mm. you're going to ask for those boundaries. Well, interculturally adrift, we hope this discussion was helpful. If you want, keep us posted on how things are going. Everyone else, if you have a parenting question of any type, send it to us at slate.com. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a Webby-winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. We talk a lot about emotions on this show. The hardest part of parenting is helping kids learn and manage their emotions, while we as parents are still learning and managing our own. Luckily, today we are joined by Deborah Farmer Chris, a child development expert and parent educator. She's a parenting columnist for PBS Kids and writes for NPR's Mind Shift. She has taught almost every grade, K through 12, served as a school administrator, and has two kids of her own. Her new book series, All the Time, is aimed at helping you and your child build an emotional vocabulary. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Why do you think building an emotional vocabulary for kids and parents is your, is your beat, for lack of a better word? Why is this the thing that you do? I've got to say that as a parent, nothing fascinates me more than my kids' emotional lives, partly because I think just like many parents of my generation... Our emotional lives weren't particularly well tended to, and that's not a criticism of my parents. It just wasn't how they were tended to. And so I was left, as many of us were, largely on our own. And if emotions were overwhelming, we were kind of sent to collect ourselves. And when I began to, you know, parent after years of teaching, it was just fascinating to me the way that 
even from this infancy, they were communicating these big, amazing, beautiful, rough feelings. And that the more I could try to help them identify causes and effects and put names to it, the smoother things went. Along the way, I began to discover that my own emotional literacy was really strengthening too, because I mean, a lot of parenting is reparenting ourselves. Jumping in there, I'm struggling. I have a um, a five year old. He is the youngest of three, and we've definitely done like the emotional vocabulary work. We do the name it to tame it. I talk about that a lot on the show. But he's very into right now being mad and everything that mad. I won't say entitles him to, but that he feels it entitles him to. So, like, if anything happens, he'll say, I'm mad. And then he wants to go, you know, throw things because he's mad. What is the next step? So we know to name it. We're naming it. (laughs) But it's still running rampant. What a wonderful question, because, I mean, it's awesome that he can say that, because clearly you've done the work, you've read the books, and you're like, woohoo, we've got the naming down. Uh, you know, there's the naming, there's the normalizing that everybody feels this, and of course, there's the navigating, right? What do we do when right. we feel this? Well, it's not a phrase that you want to use with a five-year-old. One of my favorite phrases comes from Dr. Susan David, who wrote Emotional Agility, and I've had a chance to, to interview her a few times, where she's like, our feelings that are data, but they're not directives, right? They give us information about how we're feeling. And that's great. You know, you might wear this high or low, what's triggering it, your sister knocked down your tower, you haven't had enough food, you're getting data, but data doesn't tell you what to do. And that's where actually the limits can come great. Say, I, I, I hear that you're mad. So you can do this or this, but you can't do this. And so what's in the realm of acceptable for kindness and decency yeah. in the house once they have this vocabulary? This is like the great chance to do, and I'm sure you do it, more that inductive discipline where you're linking their behavior to somebody else's feelings, right? So he's owning his own feelings. That's fantastic. Does he see how his actions based on those feelings are helping somebody else feel? So it's, you know, it's not just stop hitting. It's when you hit, your older brother gets really angry at you and it makes them want to do something too. Have you noticed that? So it's kind of like getting out of the that first sphere and into the second sphere of when you do this you know these are some of the consequences that are very natural with feelings of people around you and that's true for the positive too right like wow when you unloaded the dishwasher and i didn't ask you and i was having a tough morning that made all the difference you know thank you that was super kind and so you know kids who feel out of control and they do a lot because their lives are so micromanaged emotions are one of those places where it's like they're in control again like the emotions are mine yeah. and so that's that's real especially i'm the youngest i i feel it youngest are like i've got to make my space in the world people need to know i'm here <laughs> So I have a soon-to-be nine-year-old who has a great emotional vocabulary. What we're struggling with, and I'd love some uh, guidance, support, prayers, anything, is (laughs) when you recognize that you have these big emotions, maybe deciding when something is worth 
having a big emotional reaction or big feelings, you know? So it's the small disappointment, the small slight, the little, you know, the toy from the birthday party that broke, the inability to go get ice cream, something that is not catastrophic that causes these big feelings that she can name. So she's legitimately feeling pain. She's feeling, you know, sadness or anger or disappointment. But I also want her to be able to not feel those big, big feelings. Does that make sense? Like for her to have some level of control. Not a five alarm fire all the time. Not always on fire. And I feel like everything's always on fire. Yeah. I was just talking to a group of seniors in high school today, just a couple hours ago, where I was talking about kind of the stress alert system in the brain and how its job is to protect us. Like stress is supposed to be your friend. So, you know, if, if it's to activate that instinctive part, if you feel threatened, that response is to get you to be instinctively, you know, on the go. But not everything is a five alarm fire, right? So that's where like your prefrontal cortex is supposed to come in and say, that's just the popcorn burning. It's not really a fire. It's just, you know, the smell in the kitchen. Um, and mm-hmm. so we can we can take this one down a little bit. So part of it is not like tampering the feeling itself, but working on moving through that feeling maybe a little bit faster when it's not a five alarm fire. And mm-hmm. so this is where, you know, um, and this is helpful when she's not in the middle of it, but, you know, practicing some of those breathing exercises. My daughter loves the apps, right? That, that you know, because mm-hmm. she controls, it's not mom telling her to, to breathe, it's headspace or calm, or, you know, there's her Zenimal telling her to deep breathe. But it's kind of like, what are the strategies to move through that emotion? Because um, if you want a great visual for her, like, do you ever, have you ever shown her a glitter jar? We've made glitter jars before, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like when they're really upset, like their prefrontal cortex isn't online. It's like it's gone offline briefly, and when the glitter settles, then it can, you know, you can't really reason with the the nine-year-old upset or the two-year-old having a tantrum in Target. That's not the time to be like, this isn't the reason to be upset. But if they can Mm -hmm. learn to move through it a little bit faster, and that's a great follow-up conversation, like, you know, you lost an hour of just super upsetness there. Um, let's talk about that. And, you know, was <laughs> did that feel good? Okay. No, that didn't feel good. So, so next time this happens, what's one thing you can try? Let's just experiment. Like what's one thing you can try next time you feel like the fire alarm's going off in the brain? Just to pull it back out to, to macro a bit from, from our own kids, Deborah. Yeah. As someone who, who's a big public media person, as you are working with NPR and PBS, I'm like a huge Fred Rogers devotee. He's my like, mentor. <laughs> my fourth book is dedicated to him. Amazing. So you, did you actually know him? No, uh, I work, okay. I do a lot with the Daniel Tiger piece. And I, when I was a oh, kid, I grew up with him and like he made all the difference. And now like as a parent educator, I just use his wisdom yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. He and I share a birthday, humble <laughs> brag. Um, That's but special. I, I feel like we tend to, and, I, and I'm part of this too, we tend to really just hold him up in, in a place with kind of no one else, like maybe Gandhi or something. Like he is so glorified. Do you think there's something that he missed or something that we've learned as, as parents or as a society since his work ended that perhaps was missing from his amazing body of work? Oh, that is such a great question. I think the reason we hold him up is that... We instinctively, those of us who grew up with him, watching him, we remembered how he made us feel. We remembered that 
we felt that sense of he sees me as a person, that kids have their own dignity Mm -hmm. and they're not just adults in training. And I think that basic core, like that's really, you know, the message in my first book too, of I, I love you all the time, no matter the ups and downs. You know, there's been a lot of work on childhood trauma that's been done since his time that has been mm-hmm. really groundbreaking. Um, Dr. Nadine Brooke Harris, who just stepped down as the Surgeon General of California, is amazing, wrote The Deepest Well, really looking at uh, childhood trauma and how to how to manage that. And I think that was that was unknown territory. Um, there was clearly all the trauma, but there wasn't as much research on how that affects the brain and how many of these, what look like misbehaviors are actually the brain um, protecting. The first obligation is survival, and some of those survival strategies are maladaptive in a non-abusive environment. Um, but actually, uh, they make sense within a a traumatic environment. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that didn't really get covered. It's not even so much covered necessarily now in, in public media. It's more in the education circles, more information on trauma-informed teaching um, that you see that coming up. But I think that's been some really important work in the last couple decades. You were talking about the first book in your four-book series, I Love You All the Time. And one of the things I love about it is that it does walk you through kind of your typical day with your kid. Like, I love you when you do this great thing. (laughs) I love you when this bad thing either happens because life has had it happen or because you did something and then how we kind of fix it together. What made this book stand out to me is that at the back of the book, you have this sort of letter to caregivers with follow-up steps. Like, here are some other things you can do other than just reading this book, which is a wonderful, like, invitation that you are, in fact, the safe space. And for me, just, just reading it to the kids has made me more aware of telling them I love you in these hard moments, you know, like when we're rushing out the door saying like, hey, I love you, even though this morning has just (laughs) fallen apart, you know, like I still (laughs) love this. I would rather be falling apart with you guys than, you know, anyone else. But why do you think these this piece in the back to parents is so important? I write about parenting and child development. i I've done this for years. So I'm reading all the parenting books and there's great books out there. But honestly, if I weren't being paid to read them all, who has time for that, right? And so I've been meaning to write the adult parenting book, but then I realized that my favorite thing, literally my favorite thing about parenting is reading to my kids. Like that's my sweet spot. That's the joy at the end of the day. And I thought, you know, what if I could just reach more parents by writing a book they could read to their kids. And then if at the end I could just build on it a little bit, I wondered if my reach could actually be greater than if I wrote down brilliant or non-brilliant thoughts in a book that, you know, sat on a shelf. There are brilliant books out there, but I'm paid to read them. So if I didn't, I honestly probably pick up one a year. Right. We spend so much time trying to address how our, our children process their emotions. And at times... You know, when we're not our, at our best, we're policing their emotions. Is there something that we as adults can learn from our children in terms of how they express themselves emotionally? Hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that sometimes when they're figuring out um, their emotions, it's all over their body. Right. And that's really uncomfortable for us sometimes when you see like a four year old or a five year old and they're wearing it. And I've found that when I get curious, when I can tamper my own 
instinct to respond in kind um, and really try to get curious about, okay, what could have you know, what's going on here? Is it just hunger? Is it something else? But I had this like amazing experience with my son right at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, it was June of that year, 2020. And he um, had found this caterpillar outside and brought it in and found some nice leaves. And then the next morning, my daughter noticed that it died. Big deal. It's a caterpillar. I washed it out. I threw it away and didn't think anything of it. But then he had this just terrible day. Like he was just kicking, screaming, just out of sorts all day long. And finally, I'm like, you go to your room, I'll go to mine because I can't handle this anymore. And I went back, he'd calmed down a bit. And I said, you know, it looks like you have a lot of mad inside you today. And he said, I'm not mad, I'm sad. He said, you know, something is dead that should be alive. And he said, it was a great trauma. And what a poet. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, the caterpillar. And so, like, he'd had this sadness that had come out. And I had this, like, aha moment. Like, this was right about Father's Day. You know, my, he's named for my dad, who never met him, who'd passed away. And I was definitely having a grief spike that week. I was not handling life well, but I hadn't actually paused to name it, to notice it. Mm. I was just pushing on. And, like, the minute he said that, like, we dealt with it, and then I went on a walk and just had my good cry that I really needed to have because I had been kind of swallowing emotions because I'm busy. Who has time for that? And so sometimes I find when I get curious about my kids' emotions, it helps me just stay more in touch with my own. One more thing, Deborah, for those of us, maybe unlike Elizabeth, who, like personally, like I haven't had the name entertainment conversation uh, with my daughter yet. I haven't kind of had these explicit emotional vocab conversations with my four-year-old yet. If I want to start tonight, what's a good place to start? Reading books. I really believe that reading books and saying, oh, you know, she looks really frustrated. Uh, Because there's this wonderful term that was coined by Lisa Barrett Feldman at Northeastern University called emotional granularity, where she's found that when you can name what you're feeling with a high degree of specificity, those people are better able to choose what to do next in a kind of satisfying way to have better emotional regulation. So it's not, you're not just mad at the world, maybe you're irritated, maybe you're frustrated. And so watching the show or reading the book and when they say he looks mad or she looks mad, you can extend that and say, yeah, Mm -hmm. she must be really frustrated because, or she must be nervous because. And so it's a little bit like you're not making about them. The characters in the book get this opportunity to get a little more granular with their vocabulary that, oh, you know, she's sad. Yeah, she must be really lonely after her friend moved away. So now you're introducing a new word. And that's the joy of read aloud at this age. You can pick, it doesn't have to be an emotions book. Um, it can be really any good story that has characters who are feeling anything and you can pause and look and talk. And there's just an idea of extending the vocabulary. They offer one, you offer the kind of the next level of granularity. I have this great, I think it's called an emotional wheel and it starts yes! out, it's just like a graphic. Okay. I, I passed like, that I out to my you students today. <laughs> the first level of the wheel is basically your inside out emotions. It's like happy, sad, scared, um, mad, surprised. And then the next layer out, you start saying, okay, so am I mad or am I frustrated? Am I mad? And then the third layer out gets even more granular. So you can take something like, 
surprise I did with them today and said, okay, so surprised is a basic emotion. But for some people, if you throw them a surprise party, they're going to be confused or shocked or uncomfortable where others might get eager and excited. And that might be an introvert, extrovert thing. So surprise is a baseline, but one person's going to be really kind of shocked and confused where somebody else is going to be eager and excited. I have this laminated in like our quiet space and we use it a lot even when we're not upset. And the fun thing is like it's built my emotional vocabulary too, just because some of the words are, I almost thought of more as like, action words than feeling words so it was it was it's a really wonderful way that you can kind of all say like i'm feeling angry but this is the kind of angry like right. the anger is coming from frustration even you as an adult it has enabled me to use that and you can literally google um emotion emotions wheel, wheel. And like yeah emotions wheel yeah <laughs> And there's several versions of it, and none of them are like perfect science, but they really do give you that good sense of that mad is often the tip of the iceberg emotion, and there's something else underneath it. Uh, Or it's either either more granular, or it's actually masking um, sadness, confusion, loneliness, something else, and for our kids, it's coming out big. Deborah, Farmer Chris, thank you so much for your time. What's the best way for folks to learn about uh, your book series and follow you and your wisdom if you go to parenthood365.com like 365 days a year uh, you can find all the social channels you can find links to the books um, i love you all the time and you have feelings all the time come out in a couple of weeks then you wonder all the time is in july and you're growing all the time is in november thank you so much for your time this has been super helpful ah it's been great thank to you. be here thank you it's finally time for recommendations elizabeth What are you recommending this week? So I am recommending a computer program. It's not exactly an app. It can be played on a tablet, but um, called Night Zookeeper. And it is for writing. And it's a subscription and it's it's gamified writing. But what I love about it is that your kids are going to receive feedback from real tutors on these stories that they're writing, kind of encouraging them to delve deeper into them. And then they use some of these stories um, to publish these books, which my kids are really excited about, like getting to read other kids' stories. And of course, you can consent to your kids' writing being included or not included. All of that is available. But um, I sometimes look to outsource some of these things, like how can we get some more writing practice without me necessarily being a full-fledged participant in it. And and this is something mm-hmm. that we have really enjoyed. Largely, they're invited to go on these quests through writing. So finding a new animal in the zoo, they're going to draw that animal. Then they're going to be asked prompts about it and writing about it and what happens to it. And then they're receiving this feedback that's saying like, wow, this is great. What you didn't mention was, you know, what happened when it went into the cave? Or you mentioned its eye color, but I don't know what color its fur is or how its fur felt. Like uh, those sort of things to kind of continue to increase their writing skills. It also includes a bunch of games that help with spelling and identifying nouns, verbs, all, all that sort of fun stuff as well. But it's it's been a really big hit here. The kids ask to play it, which also always feels really good. So again, it's called Night Zookeeper. You should host a parenting podcast. You have so many good <laughs> recommendations really for stuff. This is amazing. Uh, there's a lot of hours to fill. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of um, publishing the work. Like that's such a great incentive, I would think, for a lot of kids that it's going to end up published. That's also what they always liked about the um, podcast Story Pirates that you could write in and that right. would become 
part of the podcast. Like, so that has definitely been Mm -hmm. a draw. Like, will I write something good enough that they might um, Mm -hmm. include it? What about you, Jamila? So I am recommending the Hey Girl Empowerment Journal. It was made by, uh, I don't want to pronounce her name incorrectly, but I think it's Praga Tomar. Um, It's really pretty and sweet. And it's, you know, for any uh, femme identified child, it's got like affirmations and little uh, questions, you know, for kids to answer about themselves, like what's cool, what's not so cool. Um, reminders to be kind to themselves and to be brave. And I mean, like I said, it's full of affirmations and places to draw out your dreams. And, you know, imagine if you could give the world some advice. What advice would you give? It's just got all these like really sweet prompts and like space to reflect on things, you know, and like so far since Naima's jumped in, like she hasn't taken it like straight in order. You know what I mean? Like she's able to like jump to pages that like connect to her. And the cool thing about this journal is that it's not just all prompts. There's a lot of stuff here too. So if she doesn't feel like writing or, you know, drawing that like, you know, she can have some encouragement and, you know, some kind words that are not coming from mommy that are coming from someone who's drawing with adorable little unicorns and mermaids. And it's just really, really cute. That sounds lovely. That sounds great. Okay, my recommendation is somewhat devastating, but illuminating. There's this photo essay in the New Yorker this week. Well, I saw it on newyorker.com. I'm not sure if it's in the print edition, but the photos are by Eleanor Carucci, words by Rebecca Mead. And it's this piece called Teen Lives Interrupted by COVID, Young New Yorkers Grapple with the Pandemic's Mental Toll. So it's these teeny uh, little profiles of a handful of kids with some testimonies from them about what COVID has been like for them. So I'll read from an 18-year-old's interview. Their name is Alicia Barton. They said, I remember for a while thinking, if I talk to friends, it will be fine. But eventually I found myself not talking to anyone, just being in my room the whole day. Hmm. For some reason, talking to people on FaceTime or Zoom, you're even lonelier. My school is right next to my house. I can see it out of my window. I never thought I would be, oh my God, I want to go back. I miss my school. When we did go back, a lot of my friendships kind of shifted. I thought that was going to be my little piece of normalcy, and it wasn't. I think I've become maybe less of a social person. So it's just a bunch of these little vignettes. And uh, I mean, I don't, we don't have teens, but uh, I really, my heart goes out to them and, and the parents and, and guardians of teenagers right now. This is just a, a, literally a brain shifting moment in human history that I, I don't think I have, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I've really comprehended in any real way. And this, this little um, photo essay kind of gets at it, but man, just, <sighs> so that's my recommendation. Before you go, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Also, if you rely on this show for parenting advice or for some company to keep you sane in this parenting journey, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support this show. It's the best way to support Slate. Members will never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast, and you'll get bonus content on this show and your other Slate favorites like Political Gab Fest, The Waves, and Slow Burn. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash plus. Again, that's slate.com slash plus. If you have a question for us, 
write us at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Zach Rosen. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.